Welcome to the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast. I'm Dr. Steve Albrecht, and this podcast is sponsored by Library 2.0, and you can find them at library20.com, and it's produced by the founder of Library 2.0, Steve Hargadon. My topic for this half hour is emotional control and dealing with people who are angry and perhaps even mentally ill. And I'm going to use three stories of that happened to me personally that involved homeless individuals that came into my environment, um, one at a coffee shop, one at a training that I was doing, and one that came into City Hall where I was working with one of my clients. And these uh, individuals were under a lot of stress. Something was going on in their lives. Uh, there was clear mental illness in at least um, two of them. And that also that they were seeking something. And we were able to solve their problems with some solutions that were pretty easy. And so I want you to think about what we may do to even negotiate uh, carefully with people that are coming in who are demanding, who are outraged, who are anxious, who are upset, who may have some mental health concerns coming into the library. So it's about emotional control for you. It's about feeling comfortable having uh, uncomfortable conversations. And it's also about reading people and reading a situation and saying, how can I be, and in this situation, how can I be a good negotiator with people who are sometimes not in full control of their faculties, but able to give them some options which could be useful and successful for them. So let's tell some stories here and see what you think about how you may be able to apply this at your own library and the own situations that you may be dealing with. Several years ago, I was working in a California city and I was teaching a training program for one of my clients who is a large municipality. Uh, I have the benefit of having been a consultant for a California municipal insurance provider for uh, over 23 years now, and they're my largest municipal client. Uh, they cover 123 cities in California from, from San Diego all the way to the top of the state and to the desert and to the beaches and to the mountains in between. So I have spent a long time um, working on various projects with all these city agencies around the state. And this one particular time, I was teaching a program, and it was towards the end of the day. And we were in the city council chambers for this particular city. And inside the city council chambers, we had a bunch of staff and, and you know, managers, supervisors, employees. And there were no cops. It was just, just us. And the police station was, I think, a, a couple blocks away, but it wasn't germane in this issue. Sometimes the police station is in the building where I am, and sometimes there are cops in my training, but not this particular time. And in the training, sometimes, uh, uh, almost all the time, my clients would um, get from my insurance provider client, they would get food and beverages. And so there'd be snacks and there'd be water and sodas and things like that. Well, one time, uh, as I was doing this program, I looked up and there was a, a guy standing there. Pretty clear he was homeless. He had a backpack and uh, um, he looked like he had not showered or, or bathed in a shower, showered or shaved or bathed in a while. And he was, had a pit bull on this sort of uh, belt leash. It was just like one of his belts or a piece of rope that he had that, that served as a belt leash for this dog. And pretty uh, aggressive looking pit bull. And I'm a dog guy. I have six dogs and I love dogs. But sometimes it's hard to tell with pit bulls whether they're excited to see you or just bugged or, or what. So he, the pit bull was looking at everybody. And he was looking at me and said, and he said to me, or you know, as he stood in the back of the room, what are we doing here? And I said, we're doing a training. What are you doing? And he said, I need something to eat. And I said, oh, okay. And so the rest of the group sort of froze. And they looked at me and they looked at him. And he was a big guy. He was like 6'5". He had this big beard and he had this dog. And everyone was quite uncomfortable. I said, let's take a break, folks. I want to talk to this gentleman here. And I want to get a sense of what, what uh, he needs and see if I can help him. So let's take a break. And I said to the guy, 
hey, um, is it okay if all these people walk out and go go uh, use the bathroom and, and, you know, go into the hallway? Is it okay if, if they walk past your dog? And he goes, yeah, it'll be okay. So he held on to the dog, which didn't bark or do anything. It just stood there looking at everybody, and they kind of shuffled past and went out into the hallway and left me with him. So I walked over to the guy, and I shook his hand, and I said, I'm Steve, and what was your name? And he said, I'm Dave. And I said, Dave, what's going on? And he said, I'm outdoors. Uh, I'm not doing well. I'm drunk. Uh, I don't feel good. I'm, I'm coming off drugs, and so I'm drunk because I'm coming off drugs, and I, you know, I want to go get high, but I need to eat, and I haven't eaten anything today. And I, I walked by, and I saw that you had some food and, and water, and is it okay if I take some, some food and water? And I said, sure. So I said, you know, why don't we load you up with some snacks here? Uh, it's nothing exciting, but, you know, it's, it's, it'll, it'll get you through for a little bit, and we'll give you some water. And I said, is it okay if I pet your dog? And he said, yeah. And so he loaded up his backpack with some stuff, and I pet his dog. And I said, um, you know, what's going on, man? Is there anything I can help you with in terms of maybe some services or a program or some, some people that I can put you in touch with here at the city that they may be able to, to give you some support? And he said, no, I keep getting kicked out of the programs because of my drinking. And, I, you know, I want to get sober, but I can't. I, I, I want to get off drugs, but I can't. And so I'm living on the streets, and I'm super angry about it, and, you know, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, you know, who have you talked to? And so we talked about some of the, the resources that he had used. He had talked to a social worker in town. He had talked to uh, the mental health services in town. He had talked to a homeless shelter in town. I said, you know, can we get you back in contact with somebody? Can they come talk to you or can you meet up with them? And so short story long, I did some phone calls. I got some people in the city who were the clients. They had come over to kind of see what was going on to get some help for him. And, and some folks came over and talked to him, and he walked off with them. And I felt like, at least for that moment in time, that we got him in the right direction. And so it was a pretty hairy situation. The dog, the size of him, he was obviously drunk. I mean, not, not you know, um, fall down drunk, can't control himself, but angry, drunk, like, you know, I'm, I'm ready for a fight. And I just said, this guy's got some issues. I want to be helpful to him. He's got to understand we got boundaries here. He can't scare the folks. He can't scare, scare people with his dog. Uh, you know, it wasn't a poodle that he was carrying around. It was a big, pretty good-sized pit bull. And I want to be able to help the guy, but he has to understand that, you know, I will treat him with dignity, but he's got to, you know, not scare anybody or, or make any kind of threats or, or threaten anybody in this facility. Um, you know, the fact that the guy wandered through City Hall and down the hallway over to, to the uh, city council chambers with his dog, and, you know, nobody stopped him, obviously, and maybe they were uncomfortable or, or felt, you know, it was too intimidating. But I wasn't going to let the guy disrupt my training program, but I also wasn't going to embarrass him in front of other people. I wasn't going to tell him to leave. I wasn't going to say stuff that, you know, some people may have said, like, you know, you need to get out of here. I didn't, I didn't do that because I just saw the guy looking like he was, he was hurting. He was in, in trouble. And also, you know, people like that, and I know from my experience in working with the homeless in, in, my, in my career is that, you know, they're used to being talked down to. They're used to being embarrassed. They're used to being made to feel bad. They're used to being ignored. They're used to being, being judged. And I just said, I, I got to get this guy something, and I got to figure out what it is that he wants. And so we had that conversation. I got him some snacks. I got him connected to some folks. I don't know whether he, he you know, changed his ways and, and got better. But for that moment in time, you know, he was in need, and I tried to help him as best as I could. And, and fortunately, we had some resources around, and, and you know, the snacks were there for him. And, and it, 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 at least in that time span for me, it worked out okay. So that's my first story, and I want you to think about kind of, you know, those parallels that you may have had where you've held people and helped people in the library in the same kind of, you know, they just seem like they're really up against it. 
The second story involves a homeless gentleman that came into a coffee shop where I was in Springfield, Missouri. I was meeting a buddy of mine for coffee. It was early in the morning. This guy came in. It was quite cold outside. He was wearing uh, pants and one shoe and no shirt. And it was cold outside and he had a backpack and, and he was clearly um, mentally ill. And he came into the, into the coffee shop where everybody was, you know, sort of sitting with their laptops or having coffee. It's, you know, about 7.45, 8 in the morning. And he started screaming. And he came over to me when I was sitting in the corner watching the door and from my friend and also because that's the way I sit anyway. And he came over and he sat right by me and he said, man, I'm having a really hard time. And I said, what's going on? And he proceeded to tell me about, you know, space aliens and, and people were chasing him. And there was a sense of, of that he was in peril from somebody. And so I just listened to him talk. And I said, I will. The guy was a wild eyed kind of a dude and and just looked, you know, cold weather, half dressed, all his worldly goods in a bag and super bugged. And just starting a conversation about demons and being chased and space aliens and people coming to get him and just, a, you know, a vast conspiracy of folks that were trying to make him fearful and miserable. And at the top of his lungs inside the coffee shop. And when he came and sat by me, he sat right by me. I mean, I, you know, I had a, the corner sort of stool with like a bar across the window where I could look out and wait for my friend to show up. And he came and sat right next to me and I said, okay. And everybody moved away like, you know, he was, he was dangerous. And I thought, okay, let's just hear what the guy has to say. And so if you have to come across people in the library environment who have firm fixed beliefs and, you know, we're not clinicians, but I have enough experience to know schizophrenia talk when I hear it. And I have seen enough people that have firm fixed beliefs about delusions and, and fantasies and conspiracies and, and claims and theories and ramblings that you and I don't have, not to disagree with them and not to argue with them and not to make them feel bad for what they believe and not to call them, you know, that's stupid and that doesn't really exist and what's the matter with you and you're crazy and things like that. I don't say those things to those folks and neither should you. When they are that way and that kind of ranting, manic, delusional state, just talk to them and just say, that sounds rough. Or, well, I can see what you mean. It's, it's, it's a, it's a world, world, weird world we're living in right now, man. I, I hope you're doing okay. And he said, I got to, I got to go find somebody who's going to take care of me and protect me because these, these guys are coming after me and they're, you know, from outer space or whatever he was talking about. And I'm like, I hear you. It, it sounds rough. I mean, it sounds like you're having a, a tough a tough go in this, and I hope you're doing okay. He's like, thanks, man. So he shakes my hand, and he gathers up his stuff, and he leaves. And so everybody in the coffee shop's looking at me like, you know, well, what would you say to get the guy to go away? And I, I thought to myself, well, I didn't say, you know, get away from me, crazy guy, or I didn't say, you know, you need to calm down or anything like that. And there's another part of the story, which is the coffee shop guy came over and was standing by me, the manager, and and he handled the situation well too. He didn't he didn't freak out. He didn't you know tell the guy you need to leave or that kind of thing. He just said, "What can I do for you?" He he said you know the coffee shop guy said, "You know, I, I got to help my customers and I you know I don't I I know you're you got things to do and so I'm happy to you know if I can give you some water. You want to use the restroom." Guy's like, no, man, I'm okay, thanks, but I, I don't need the restroom anymore. I'm, I'm just going to go. And the guy's like, all right. So 
you know, he said, good luck to you. And he turned and went back to work. And so the coffee shop guy, who's probably, you know, based on the location where I was, has dealt with some people wandering into the coffee shop that, that have issues. Didn't try to kick the guy out. Didn't give him the, you know, the riot act to read, you know, read him the standard, you know, you, you can't come in here and bother my business. And you stop bugging my, my customers and you're scaring people and you need, I'm going to call the cops, blah, blah, blah. Now, uh, the coffee shop guy can certainly get there. We can certainly go to that, and you can do it as well in the library environment where you say, I can I can certainly get to, you need to leave, and if you don't, I'm going to call the police or call security if we have that function. But what he did was kind of the same thing I was trying to do, which is hear the guy out and not argue with him about his firm fixed beliefs about delusional or rational stuff and offer some, and I, I kind of think of this as sort of a negotiated agreement, right? Offered him some possibilities. You need water, you need to use the restroom. You can do both. Now, you can't sit in here and scare people. That was kind of the, the, the negotiated sort of understated part that he didn't say out loud, but that was the message. You can't stay in here and scare people, but I'm willing to do restroom, you know, pass for you or, or, uh, or, or water for you if, you if you want that. So that goes back to something I have said in my training with Library 2.0 people for a long time and in the library training environment, which is you can't do that if you want to stay here. And you can't do that if you want to stay here is a great phrase for people to make a choice as to what they want to do. It's a great phrase for people who don't have a lot of options and you say, well, uh, you, you can do this or that, but you can't do either of these if you want to stay here. So, so you can sit in here quietly, but if you want to yell, you got to go outside and you can't, you can't come back in until you stop yelling. Stuff like that, I think, gives people sometimes a face-saving way out. And also for people that have mental health issues, um, we're not giving them really complex solutions that they have to sort of divine what the answer is. They can just figure it out, yes, no, pretty quickly. So when I look at the, the coffee shop guy, it, it's kind of an, a negotiated agreement about I'm not saying that, you know, you, I'm going to cause a big scene to make you cause a big scene, but I'm going to try to set some boundaries with you when it comes to my customers. And, and think about it. The coffee shop guy has the same issues that we do in the library, which is this is not his first encounter with this guy. This is not the first time he'll see him. He may see him again tomorrow. Just like in the, co in the library world, like the coffee shop, you have frequent flyers. You have challenging patrons, problematic patrons, eccentric patrons, difficult patrons. Uh, patrons that you know have sort of an intrusive way about them that come back on a regular basis, and you have some that are perfectly fine, and some that that you know cause some energy when they come in the room, when they come in the building, and you can't always pick your customers, and just like the coffee shop guy can't always pick his customers, we don't pick and choose. We invite everybody, and it's a public place. We treat people with the same respect we expect them to treat us as employees and as facilitators and and sort of shepherds of the library uh, building, right? We have the sense that we want to provide a safe environment for everybody. So that phrase, the more I think about it and the more I have used it over my career and, and talked about it as a training thing, you can't do that if you want to stay here, is such a perfect possible solution in an imperfect world where not everybody cooperates and complies, but some people will and most people will if you treat them the right way, as a way to get some compliance and get some um, sort of a dignity, uh, empathy, patience conversation with somebody that ordinarily would probably not be treated that way by other people in, you know, in a public environment or like a, you know, a, another coffee shop down the street. The third example I can uh, share is that one of my clients is a city hall in California. And a guy came in who was clearly homeless. He said he was homeless and he had a, a backpack and he had a bicycle and he was pushing the bike. 
and he uh, was pushing the bike because he had a flat tire. I think maybe even two flat tires, at least one, and he couldn't ride the bike. It was like a mountain bike. So he came into the lobby of the city hall, and they had a glass sort of, you know, banker's teller's type window where, you know, there was a little slot where you could pass papers under, and there was a, you know, a, a window with a, a microphone area so they could talk to the, he could talk to the receptionist. It was kind of a, a closed off, you know, window de- design like a bank would be where you can't just hop over the counter. They'd had some issues in this city, and so they had put a more secure barrier in place on the front of City Hall. So this guy comes in, and he starts screaming, I need a phone. I need a phone. I need a phone. That was all he would scream. My bicycle is broken. I need a phone. I have to call my friend to come pick me up. I don't have a phone. I need a phone. And so the, the ladies behind the counter, you know, behind the glass, were saying, well, we can't give you a phone. We don't have a phone. We can't make, we're not allowed to make phone calls for you. And he got more and more disturbed. I need a phone. I have to make a phone call. My friend has to come get me. I, I can't fix my bike. I need to go. I need, I need to get access to the phone. Well, you know, this is the era of cell phones, and he doesn't have one. And this is the era of no, no pay phones, and there's, not, you know, there's no way to make a pay phone call. And the folks behind the counter, and rightly so, if they didn't feel it was appropriate, they said, well, you can't use our phone. It's just against our rules. And, and he got more and more angry. So he picked up his bicycle at one point after screaming for quite a while, and he threw it against the side window of the, one of the main plate glass windows of the lobby of the, of the city hall. Now, fortunately, he did it in such a way where it hit, I think, off the, you know, the rubber handlebars or the rubber seat or something like that. It didn't break the window. It just, you know, his, his, his um, bicycle fell to the, to the deck inside the hallway there, the entryway of city hall, and he picked up his bike, and he started up the conversation, and I need a phone, I need a phone. Finally, somebody had pushed either a panic button at the desk or had called 911. And the police station, uh, the police uh, police headquarters for that particular city hall was about 50 feet away in the lobby. They had a, um, you know, an, an entrance point there. You could come in and either go to the left to city hall or to the right to the PD. And so there was no cops in the, in the, in the building. They were all at a meeting, which happened to be down the hall in city hall. And all the lieutenants and captains and commanders were in this meeting. All the patrol guys were out on the field and ladies. Um, so someone ran down the hall and got got one of the commanders to come out, and he came out into the into the lobby and he saw the guy and the guy was continuing to scream about I need a phone I have to call somebody and and my bike's broken and he was just you know screaming. And the commander said I'll call for you. I pulled out a cell phone and said What number do you want me to dial? And the guy told him. He said Who who am I talking to? And he said the guy's name. And then the commander got on the phone with the guy and said Hey this guy wants to talk to you, and he handed him his phone. And the guy with the bicycle talked to his friend about coming and picking him up. And, and they could go fix his bike somewhere. And the guy handed back his phone to the commander, and, and, and he didn't say anything. He just walked out. And a little while later, a guy came by in a pickup truck and picked up the guy and his bicycle and took him somewhere. So, you know, kudos to the cop for not blowing it out of proportion. Now, certainly... If they had broken the window of the city hall, he'd be in jail. I mean, that's you know that's a that's a fifteen hundred dollar window probably. He'd be in jail. But when you look at that situation, you know the cop's first instinct for this guy is, what does he need? He needs a phone. He doesn't have one. I have one. Okay? I'll make a phone call on the guy's behalf. I'm not giving him my phone. He's not going to bring it back tomorrow. Or I'm not saying you know you could use it for the week. I'm just going to make a phone call for the guy's behalf. The guy told him the number. He called, talked to somebody who seemed reasonable, who said, yeah, I'll come pick the guy up. Maybe it was a caregiver, maybe it was his brother, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was, you know, somebody that he knows from 
his life that couldn't help him, but he came. And he came and picked the guy up, and he left, and that was it. And the staff, you know, was, was obviously upset. They watched the guy throw the, the bicycle against the window, and they said, well, did we do the right thing by pressing the panic alarm? And I was there, and the answer was yes. And, and we said, you know, what, what's the best approach in terms of getting the police? And they said, well, we called over there, and no one was there at the, at the station, so we were trying to figure out where they were, and we found out from the dispatcher that they were in our building, and we went and got them. So they pulled somebody out. The commander came over, and, and he took care of the situation, as I've explained it. So when you look at these encounters, sometimes our, our usual approach, especially from the cops, is, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to arrest you if you don't calm down, or, you know, you better watch it, pal. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to arrest you for, you know, the things that you're saying or doing. That may not necessarily be that illegal yet. Now, throwing the bicycle in the window is certainly a, a, an attempt to break the window, but he didn't. If he'd broken the window, vandalism, felony vandalism with that kind of money, no, no, uh, no issues there. He's going to get arrested, but he didn't. No damage to the window, and, and so the cop said, "What's the best solution for this thing? Is just to get get the phone call made for him using my phone." And so think how you might have to do that. Someone says, "You know, I'm I'm having a horrible time, and I need you to call my parents, or I need you to call my friend, or I need you to call my caregiver, or I need you to call somebody on my behalf." And we do that, and we say, "You know, it's a it's it's cheap." Uh, solution. It's a it's a solution that doesn't cost us you know any money for the phone call particularly. We're not calling you know Sweden. It's, it's down the street, and it demonstrates empathy and it says to the person, "I'm willing to do something for you." But then the second part is you got to do something for me, which is not continue to scream, not continue to frighten folks, not continue to cause a scene and draw attention to yourself in such a way that other people are scared and don't want to come to the library. So I think about these these sort of trade-offs that we can do for people, these sort of negotiated trade-offs we can do. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. Or you can't do this unless, you know, you can't stay here unless you stop doing a certain thing. And this, this trade-off uh, issue in terms of human behavior I find interesting. Notice in each of the three scenarios I told you, there's some commonalities. One, each, each person in, in the scenario was clearly homeless. Now, we don't value judges based on what somebody looks like, but you can figure out in your experience if someone seems like they're homeless, and it's not just they, you know, they dress in sort of an eccentric way, but it, it, you, know, you can tell that they've not been able to care for themselves and they're homeless. The second is each of those three people um, either demonstrated or admitted to, and my guy in the, in the, came into the training environment, admitted, and the other two demonstrated some kind of mental health issue, some kind of mental illness issue in terms of behavior. Anger, fear, anxiety, aggression, that kind of a thing. It's, it's demonstrated in their, in their behavior, and we would say that they're having troubles with their conduct based on what's driving their brains, what's, what's going on inside their heads. So we're not playing amateur psychologists. We're saying, I suspect mental illness. I suspect homelessness. I may also, especially with my guy, I could smell the alcohol on my guy in the training environment as soon as he walked in. I was, I was 70 feet away from him. I could smell the alcohol on him. And when I walked up to him, he said, I've been drinking all day, I'm drunk, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm coming off drugs, and I'm feeling bad. I mean, I was like, yeah, I get it. I, I can see. I talk about, from a safety perspective, what can we smell when we look at people? Smell the odor of alcohol, smell the odor of marijuana. You know, do we smell um, um, body odor, which would suggest depression or mental illness or, or you know, someone's, their medication is making them, you know, their body secrete foul odors, things like that, you know, pretty, pretty obvious to what you experience from what your eyes and your, your ears and your nose tells you. 
Again, not a value judgment, just observation. I don't care what people look like. I care what they do. I don't care what, what people, how they present in front of me is their appearance. I care what they do. And does their, their appearance in front of me in terms of their behavior impact the library in a negative way? And in those three guys, if they were in the library, they, they certainly would have. So we have the coffee shop. We have the, the bicycle guy at City Hall. And we have the, the guy coming into my training environment. And each of those scenarios I've thought about as kind of a behavioral compromise, kind of a, a negotiated agreement. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. And so that brings up a couple things. We, we keep our promises with these folks. We agree to do something for them, and we do it. So I'll get you the phone. Here's the phone. You know, I'll get you some water. Here's the water. We don't overpromise. We don't underpromise. We, we don't fail to keep our promises. We tell them the truth about things. You know, I, I, I can't have you do this. You, you, you got to go. I don't want to have to call the cops. I will. And those are negotiated agreements as well. You can stop the response or the arrival of the police by leaving. Or you can stop the arrival of the police by, by becoming calm. You can stop the arrival of, of the police by, you know, going uh, away quietly before they get here and not causing any damage or any other issues with anybody else, me included. So this, this sense of, the, of, of uh, asking for their compliance by making kind of a compromise. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. Um, allowing them to save face by making a choice. Allowing them to have some decision in it to act like a human being that's not being told what to do because a lot of times these folks are always told what to do. They're told what to do by cops. They're told what to do by security people. They're told what to do by store people. They're told what to do by everybody. Even when they, they go to shelters, they're told what to do. So we give them some sense of choice and compromise. But then also the critical part there is that we enforce consequences. And so if you say you can't do that if you want to stay here and the guy continues and you say, I'm going to call the cops if you don't stop, then you have to call the cops. You can't say, well, I'm going to give you five more warnings or, you know, this time I really mean it or, you know, next time you come in and, you know, I'm just going to let you sit here and do this until, you know, next, next time you do this, I'm going to call the cops. You can't do that. So... Not only do you not overpromise to them and don't fail to keep your promises, but you have to keep your promises to yourself, which is if I say I'm going to call the cops, I call the cops. If I say I'm going to get security, I get security. If I say I'm going to ask this person to leave, I ask them to leave. If I say that there's something that they have to do for me and they don't do it, I have to enforce the consequences. Otherwise, the message to them is you're not really serious and I can maybe talk you out of or just ignore you and that's not what we want with these folks. I think about... I wrote a book many years ago with my dad called Added Value Negotiating. The Added Value Negotiating book was all about deal packages. And deal packages in our negotiating book was a set of value factors that we created where people could pick from either deal A or deal B or deal, deal C, either one, two, or three. They couldn't cherry pick the best deal for themselves, not, not choose the best factors from each one. Each deal stood or fell on its own, but they could negotiate inside the deal once they picked one. And that was really a man bites dog for us approach to negotiating because a lot of times negotiating has kind of a win-lose feel to it. And what we were saying is it's not about win-lose. It's about here's what I'm willing to give you. You pick what you need. I can live with any of these. I have my favorites, of course, but if you pick number one, I'll be okay with it. You pick number two, I'd be okay with it. You pick number three, I'd be okay with it. Think about this in your life in terms of how you buy services from your cable company, from your cell phone company, uh, from some, some plan that you buy where there's a, there's a gold medal package, which is you know, $170 a month. And there's a silver medal package, which is $100 a month. And then there's a bronze medal package, which is $42 a month. 
the bronze medal package has a lot less stuff than the, than the gold medal package. And the silver medal package has a little bit more than the bronze one, but not as much as the gold. So depending on what you want to pay and what services you need, you know, is it HBO, is it Cinemax, is it Showtime, is it sports channels? That's the gold package, right? If you don't want those things and then you want movie channels, maybe that's the silver one. And if you just want basic cable, that's the bronze one. So we do this all the time in our own lives where we buy stuff. I mean, think about, you know, the combo meals at the fast food restaurant. That's kind of a, that's kind of a deal package, right? With this one, you get fries. With this one, you get, a, you get a soda. With this one, you get a chicken sandwich. And this one, you get a hamburger. Think of those ways where we can create negotiated agreements with people where we say, you have this choice or that choice. You have A, B, or C, or A or B. And whichever one you take is okay with me, but you got to pick one. And you can't take the best of A and B and turn it into something that's not. But, you know, you can't sit here and scream and yell. You can, you can scream and yell outside or you can sit here quietly, but you can't do both. And so I give people... As, especially folks that have serious mental health issues and are not good listeners and they're having a lot of emotional uh, reactions to life and stress and anxiety and not the good listening skills overall, I, I think about those folks as, as how can we negotiate a way with them that isn't, a, um, isn't the idea of they have to do something that they don't want to do but because you'd be happy with either choice. You just wanted to pick one of them. Sometimes people get confused in the negotiated discussion about things that somehow you're conceding. And I don't use the word concessions. I use the word trade-offs. Do this for me. I'll do that for you. If you can't do this for me, I can't do that for you. And the idea of concessions or conceding, which means I'll concede your point or I'll concede this, this you know, task or this right or this movement over to you is suggest giving up. And I like fairness like everybody else. And so if you're going to do something good for me, then I'll do something good for you. If you're unable to do something good for me, then I'm, I may be unable to do something good for you. So concessions is not in my vocabulary, the word trade-offs. I'll do this for you, patron, if you do this for me. Think about this for groups of patrons. Think about it for kids. Think about a group of, of homeless individuals coming in. Think about a group of students coming in. I can do this for you all if you do this for us in return. And so just think about those opportunities that you have to negotiate behavior. How do you look at trade-offs? How do you look at, I'll do this for you if you do this for us? You keep your promises. You expect the other person to keep their promises. These aren't complex discussions we're having. They're pretty simple. Please do this for me, and I'll do this for you. And it's about behavior, and it's about conduct, and it's about impact on the library business where folks are fearful sometimes of the people that are acting up, and other patrons are concerned and move away. And you just step in and go, I'm, I'm here to help you, but you got to help me. I'm here to, I'm here to go you know, towards what you need, but you got to come towards what I need. And it's about compliance. And, you know, one of the things I've said before in training is sometimes with some people, if you say to them, I bet you know why I'm coming over here, in kind of a lighter touch, they go, yeah, I'm being noisy. I bet you know why I'm coming over here. Yeah, because I'm acting up. Yeah. And so that starts that, that I see you where you are. I want you to see me where I am as a library professional, as a library employee. And let's come up with a negotiated agreement. All I'm looking forward from you is that you help create a peaceful environment here. All I'm looking forward for you is that you created a, a safe place here for everybody. And if you can't do that, you got to leave. But if you can, you can stay. And so let's, let's talk about it. Let's negotiate it. So my thanks to the producer of Library Service Safety and Security Podcast, Steve Hargadon. He is the founder of Library 2.0. For more information, visit the Library 2.0 website at library20.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Steve Albrecht, and thanks for listening to the Library Service safety and security podcast.